1: Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hold up, what was that? Boring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello?
0: Team Human is free to all, but if you have the resources to support the show, it would sure help us out a lot. Plus, as a full team member, you get access to bonus content, our community Discord channel, regular online salons with our guests, and free or discounted tickets to our Team Human live events like last week's free full access two-day pass to the Unfinished Festival. Most important, you'll keep our editor fed and this ad-free show on the air. So go to teamhuman.fm and click on support to find the others like Guillerme Ferreira, Natalia Abramishvili, Claire Yarunchuk, Alexander Meister, and Nico Verslois, and play for and with Team Human. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine, a new way of seeing value, not in the profit we can make off others, but in the value we can create together. This is the ultimate Turing test. Do we have the ability to love irrationally and without conditions or reward? Do we even want to learn how? I know I do. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, new media artist, curator, and the visionary behind Noor, the world's first interactive brain opera, Ellen Perlman.
2: And we will say, look, it acts exactly like, and it imitates exactly like, so therefore it must have. But consciousness, in my understanding, is rooted in
0: the human body. Ellen will bring us where no machine can go into the last soft, squishy recesses of human experience still inaccessible to our robot overlords. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. Thanks to the recent flooding in my part of the country, I have been too busy digging myself and my neighbors out of the mud to watch the news or scroll through Twitter. And not surprisingly, I am better for it. (laughs) Somehow, without the benefit of either Glenn Greenwald's tweets or Rachel Maddow's rants, I'm still aware of what's going on in the world. I get the newspaper on my doorstep and some email headlines in my inbox. So I know about climate change. I know about the California governor recall election. I know about the debt ceiling crisis. I know about the new citizen informant system in Texas for people to turn in neighbors who try to get abortions after five weeks. But having kind of dropped out just after just after Joe Rogan recovered from COVID. I don't really know who's even winning the argument over whether it was the expensive monoclonal antibodies that saved him or the much maligned ivermectin. I don't know whether Obama, Trump, or Biden is currently being blamed for misreading the Taliban the worst. I don't even know who was canceled last week or if Bitcoin is up or if Newsmax ever figured out the guy they've been putting on their errors, Paul Wolfowitz, is really one of the yes-men. Instead, I've been part of a an ad hoc crew of locals and volunteer firefighters bailing out each other's basements, uh, shoveling mud from living rooms, carrying busted hot water heaters to the curb, and making meals for those without kitchens we are an ideologically and economically, if not quite racially, diverse community of the vaxxed and unvaxxed, masked and unmasked, who may differ on whether this is a -a once-in-a-lifetime extreme weather event or the new normal. But our common commitment to mutual aid, sharing resources, and comforting the truly devastated, that far outweighs those differences, which were themselves largely manufactured by political and corporate interests who do not have our best interests at heart anyway. So sure, we can spend our time watching incendiary YouTubes or reading whichever substack writer stokes our rage the best or we can go outside and get to the real work of making our communities as resilient as possible. Is it important to know what's going on in the world? Sure it is. Sure. All citizens are activists to a certain extent. Our votes matter, and so does our direct action when it's called for. But only a tiny Tiny fraction of us need to be hashing out these issues in public, weighing in on the, the pharmacological action of mRNA vaccines or strategizing withdrawal from Afghanistan? I mean, come on. Moreover, the more resilient and self-sufficient we can be on a local level, the less pressure we put on these larger systems and decisions. The more sustainable our local economies, the less brittle we'll be if if we have to respond to some sudden influx of immigrants or a debt ceiling crisis or COVID-related business closures. The more quickly and efficiently we can assist each other during extreme weather events, the less dependent we're going to be on FEMA and the budget and other centralized authorities for cash. This kind of cooperation may actually require that we reduce our exposure to the most inflammatory messaging coming from our for-profit news opinion shows and the internet platforms, which are all working really hard to undermine the collaborative spirit we need to face these challenges it's not that the world can go on without our attention. It's that our attention is better spent and more urgently needed in the real world that we inhabit with our embodied selves. I don't know if I've ever met a more embodied self than today's teammate, Ellen Perlman. She's a dancer, choreographer, Tibetan dance scholar, and the interactive artist behind the most revelatory immersive arts experiences of our time, with or without technology. So please take a listen. This is what the real artist sounds like. Researched, real, straightforward, responsive, thoughtful, critical, open, and alive. There's so much I want to speak with you about. First, thanks so much for doing this. It's great sure. to see you again and just us instead of some whole crowd of other people. I'm interested, you know, because and, and uh, uh, Ken Jordan, who I had on the show, also got to speak with you. And he said, just as you were speaking with him, the uh, preprint of the UN Declaration on AI, their so-called right to privacy in a digital age came out. And he sent it to me and I looked at it and it feels like it tracks in order it tracks your last three major artistic interventions. Yeah. It's shocking. It's almost as if they based it on your work. <laughs> uh, thanks, <laughs> Just, but, you know, you tell that to them, they probably don't even know about my work. Yeah, well, they should. Yeah. But So it's so there, there were three main things, it seemed to say, you know, that, that I got from it. One, that privacy is a fundamental human right. Right. Um, two, that lethal autonomous weapon systems are really bad. And three, that biometric prediction – is basically voodoo, and, <laughs> and it's going to be wrong. Not totally, right? not totally, partly. Okay. Vo- but it could be wrong to the point where we do really bad things to people. Right. But I'm interested. So privacy is something you started with. It looks like 10 or 15 years ago, you got really interested in privacy, and you were asking the question, as best as I could see it, what is there anything that's potentially Enforcibly private. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, I started the work
2: in 2013, and probably you don't know this, but the Japanese can already decode dreams, lifetime imagery from dreams. And that's a very interesting aspect. I'm I'm not going to go into how they can do that. Um, The U.S. military is also very interested in that, as are other military governments. Hmm. When I did a deep dive in my doctoral thesis into surveillance and human cognition, I was astounded on how much was already being done with – IARPA, which is uh, uh, the intelligence wing of DARPA. And then I found out that not only did the United States have a human brain project, it was called the Obama Brain Initiative, launched Ah. in 2012, but the European government had one, the Australian government, the Japanese government, the Canadian government, the Australian government, and of course, the Chinese government all had uh, brain and cognition initiatives underway with long-range 10-year rollouts.
0: And they're looking at what? I mean, your your project th- had the, the woman sort of walking through the space with this thing on her head that was like reading her brainwaves and then projecting images and things. Now, mm. were those images from her inside her brain or were they – it was more like her brainwaves were triggering images that you had in there?
2: You know, the, the motive headset, which she was wearing – can only track four types of emotions, frustration, interest, excitement, and meditation. Mm. And it does that with a proprietary smoothing algorithm that emotive owns. So I could track those four valences or emotions. So I made four databases of frustrated images, mm. you know, meditative images, you know, type of images, and when her biometrics would reach a certain threshold between 0 and 100, the image would trigger, as well as an associative sound would trigger, so her brain became the operatic driver for the experience, and as she moved through the audience, she would look at them. She would touch them. She would glance by them, and that affected her brainwaves. Because when you look at someone, the gaze or the touch changes your response, which changes your brainwaves. So it was an instant human feedback loop
0: in the first one. Instant. And then the first one—did she have a script? Like, I want you to get angry by this point. Okay. Or? Uh, no, and and.
2: What I had to do with her is, you know, she was originally a bassist in Turkey's first all-female heavy metal band. And the reason that was good is she was used to performing. She wasn't an actor, but she was used to performing on stage in front of 100,000 people. Mm. So uh, that was good about her.
1: Yeah,
2: I worked with her for five months with the director of the contact improvisation school in hong kong and she had to learn how to walk through around people look at them without getting over excited and constantly you know going yeah so we somatized her movement so that was the first thing she had to train in movement and interaction with people the second thing is we had we did not have a script, and a week before we launched, or two before we launched the opera, we did some test runs, and the audience kept saying, We need a story. We want a story. So we improvised a story based on the life of Nurania Khan within two weeks. And so the lines were not scripted, but they were thematic. And when I would say, and she was sent, to the death camps, and she would know what to say in her own words. So it was spontaneous,
0: but it was thematic, like a call and response. Right. And we'll play a little bit of that, because I've got the, the tape from your website.
2: Noor Inayat Khan was the daughter... Of Hazrat Inayat Khan, who brought Sufism to the West. He died when Noor was 13.
1: A man with a strong message. My irresistible.
2: my father father. the family moved to france world war ii broke out the world i knew changed all of a sudden with war we were looking for a new home But Noor was not content doing nothing, and she joined British Secret Intelligence, training as a wireless operator. It was a big responsibility, acquired self-sacrifice. I had to learn everything one by one.
1: Mike, it was a
2: A few months later, Noor was parachuted behind enemy lines into Nazi-occupied France. Noor Inayat Khan was astounding. She was a Sufi Muslim woman. Her father, Hazarat Inayat Khan, had brought Sufism to the West. He was the person who brought it. Um, her father died when she was 13. And she was raised mostly in France, where she and her brother and mother lived in a donated home. World War II broke out, and she moved to England. The family evacuated, and she joined uh, British secret intelligence. And once there, she trained as a wireless operator, which was very strange. And uh, she was airlifted, parachuted into. Vichy-run France, to be a secret wireless operator in Paris. Where And the way that worked is you had copper wire and you strung it in a tree or something like that. And you had a little suitcase with a transmitter and you transmitted signals back. So for three months, she was the only source of information for the Allies behind enemy lines until her cell was cracked by an informer. She was put in prison twice and escaped twice. And then she was caught a second time and she was finally sent to Dachau and executed. And so she never broke and she never gave up anyone unlike her fellow comrades. And she had a lot of faith because her father was this great Sufi master. So I asked A question is, can faith be a part of where invasive technologies can't go? And what would have happened had her interrogators, who were the um,
0: SS, I believe, been able to use these technologies on her? It's such a fascinating concept because, you know, faith – is uh, it's funny, it's a, a section of this book I'm working on right now where I got in a big argument with um, Richard Dawkins and some of his friends about his God delusion work. And I wasn't trying to say that there's anything called God necessarily, but that there's an, other things that can't be explained in the simple billiard ball like materialistic science, the scientism that they have. And they're like, no, there's not. And then they started calling me a moralist and superstitious and all. But I felt like this thing, this ineffable understanding of there being something sacred or soul-like or faith-like that's holding the human together is what their science and capitalism and technology can never quite grasp. They'll they'll never get that. They'll get our DNA, but they won't get this other ness. So then so this did become about a surveillance ultimately because the thing is looking at her her memories, her her knowledge. You know, there's something right now
2: called the semantic brain. And I'm gonna explain that very briefly, in which you you know, it was an experiment done at the University of California, Berkeley. Jack Gallant's lab by Alexander Huth. And let's say you're looking at a movie of someone riding a bicycle. Now, cognition is understood not left brain and right brain, but that there are little parts in every human animal's brain that work with motion, transportation, and they can micro it into areas that are airplanes wheeled vehicles, you know, and it's all mapped out in how you cognate and where the brain lights up. So what that means is lifetime you can sort of understand what someone's looking at and that of course translates to dreams because you're looking at images and dreams and mm-hmm. the same areas light up, which is the work the Japanese have been doing. So already what you're imagining or thinking can sort of be tracked and known what imagery you're aware of or envisioning. That's already possible under laboratory conditions at this point. Although um, there are, uh, and Facebook is very aware of this and working on it in their Building 8, although they did not invent the technology, there is a woman called Mary Lou Jepsen And she has created a beanie cap. It's so small, and it has a mylar type of bendable plastic. And that bendable plastic fits into the beanie cap, and that bendable plastic can have infrared sensors that can also track exactly what Jack Gallant's lab can track. And Facebook Building Aid is aware of this and also working on a similar product for video games. You have people wear these caps.
0: That's already, gosh, old news. Right, and it's great to know that these technologies are in the hands of the very n- nicest, most ethical people who have all of our best interests at heart. But <laughs> but it's not to this point of like I'm sure y- you're probably old enough to remember like the prisoner. Remember that show, the sure. Number Six, and he would they would they would stick him in a room and lie him down, and then you would see his dreams like on a TV set. They would just watch his dreams. Do you think like we're going to be at a place like that where we can see sort of pictures of what? Going to be what's yes. in there? Yes, we already are in a lab. We already are. And then you figure, once we really, really know how to do it, it's only a matter of time before they could do it remotely. You know, put a drone outside somebody's window. And I, then... I
2: wouldn't go that. I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I would, I would not say it could be done by a drone because of the way wireless signals interact with atmosphere and a lot of other things. Right. Although, although. On one hand, you're right, and I'll tell you how you're right. Photonics. And Facebook Building 8, back, uh, a few years ago, f- signed what was called a SARA, S-A-R-A agreement, which is a special re- research agreement with 12 research universities. And one of them was Johns Hopkins University. And Johns Hopkins has in its physics department uh, a, a high-end photonic generator and photons are you know they're microscopic like electrons and photons can be sent to you your brain and bring back information on a atomic level of the changes in your brain so these kinds of things right Can be seen with something like a nuclear, not nuclear, a physical physicist's photonics. Now, why that gets so interesting is Regina Durbin, who was head of DARPA, quit and went over to work for Facebook Building 8. And there's actually a YouTube video of her going on and on about photonics at a Facebook conference. She then quit the following year. I don't know why. I don't know what happened. So, Facebook. Is well aware of photonics, so when you're talking about
0: drones, no photonics, yes, right. But so it's almost like Doppler seeing a submarine. You shoot things out and then you get yeah, it back. Kind and, of, yeah, yeah. And and the question, I mean, for me, and not just because you know I'm I'm a Jew and have relatives who were in the Holocaust and all that, and I'm I'm used to the some of the the subject matter of these pieces It's just you know... Uh, it gets me on a on a heart and and a, a, almost a DNA memory level, but on on the other hand, I started to trip out on the idea. I always think of things in terms of media, and I I always used to ask myself, even as a kid, what's not. Media. You know, my hands are media because I make signs with it, my breath, whether my button is done or not. That's media, my clothes are media. Then you go all the way down, and I used to say, oh, well, you know, all the way down to my DNA. You know, then my that's not media, but what's more media than DNA? That's pure media. So Mm -hmm. I started to wonder, is anything not media, is anything not surveillable? You do finally answer that in all of your work and the beauty of it, there's almost always a female protagonist too, which is somehow mm-hmm. so important to me as the, the the embodiment, the human embodiment has something else about it that that only the artist, only the spiritualist can begin to address and you're both and the dancer you know so you're you're actually you're triangulating the only ways we have of of understanding and articulating what makes us what makes us human and the alternative you know i feel like it's what you got to in your second piece the alternative to that when you're missing that you get the sociopath you know which is to me what your second work is about if you project all of that and leave this piece out that you are identifying for us and celebrating for us you get sickness you get this this ai Crazy killer. When, when you go on and on about something, you
2: can alienate an audience. They don't want to be hit over the head with bad news. You right. know, that's that's not very effective. Although that's a valid aesthetic. Okay. And so what I did is I decided there's a new technology uh, that came out in only February 2019, and it's called GPT-2. And it's sort of like a chatbot on steroids. And when it first came out, it had three versions, you know, GPT-2 light, GPT-2 medium, and GPT-2 military grade. <laughs> and the people who made GPT-2 were so scared of the military grade level being used, in, you know, to fake things that they forbid its use. Huh? They locked it up. However that didn't last long and it got cloned and released. But for my purposes, I use middle grade GPT-2, which was 354 million inputs of information, let's just say. With a team of developers from ThoughtWorks Arts, I spent 10 months developing a character. And the character, I'll tell you how I did it to make a perverted. I didn't Specifically, want an overly fascist. I wanted a sexually perverted character uh-huh. because that's a little more um, juicy for a performance. Right, it's
0: better you for know.
2: theater than a yeah, pure right. fascist. Yeah, right, right. So I found copyright-free text from 191890 to 1940, which was uh, the time frame of the life of Adolf Hitler. And the texts were movie scripts and books, and there were things like Frankenstein, Dracula, Venus in Furs. Uh, I got books like The History of Eugenics, Male Sexual Perversion, Anals of Castration in Animals. I mean, I just went full on with all these really strange things. And we made that our textual database for the character, and then through many iterations, using a you know the parameters within the machine learning algorithms, we refined it, and we ran the character live time during the performance from the Google Cloud. The libretto, which the female Ava s- said, were statements that instead of. She, we made it I, so it could become, you know, he more approachable. Actually, from the 14 year relationship between Eva von Braun and Adolf Hitler. Yeah, The Lost Life of Eva von Braun, which came out a few years ago, was the basis
0: for the libretto. Right. And that was from her writings, or so like diaries.
2: Her or... diaries and uh, interviews with people right. who knew her. Yeah. So they were real, and the responses each time the opera was performed would change. Then what we did, or what I did, is I decided to take the responses from the AI and analyze them for motion. Hmm. And at this point, using natural language processing, the analysis could only be positive, negative, or neutral, because right now natural language processing is very early in the game. So. In the opera, the synthetic answers from a synthetic being were being analyzed live time for emotional sentiment and being compared and contrasted with Ava's sentiment, which was showing on her body as different colors of light. You could see the different colors of light change Mm. on her body. It was as if she had her nervous system on her skin exposed. And was she a good enough actress to fake the colors or okay here's the thing there's no such thing as faking with when you're wearing a brain computer interface <laughs> <laughs> you you cannot fake it 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 doesn't exist it's like faking a heartbeat you can't do it what i also did with her is i trained her for 4 months in going over the libretto and i would say you know emphasize this imagine that i had she wasn't an actress She's a videographer, but I um, trained her to work with a brain. You, the, the performers need to be trained to work with sensors. It's right. not a normal way. So she usually, the first performer usually got very excited all the time. And this performer got frustrated and flatlined a lot in, med- in meditation. She was very like cold. So I had to bring up her excitement and interest levels because she wasn't
0: very excitable and she didn't really care very much. Right. Well, there's also the natural defense mechanisms of a human being interacting Mm -hmm. with a psychopathic artificial intelligence. You know, at some point you will Mm – defensively shut down
2: yeah and and that was something that we worked with
0: you know i mean we knew this
2: was going to happen so uh, and i had already done one performance so you know you can't just take if i said okay doug now you're going to do this right now it would not work you you would have no idea how to work with some a sensor
0: that was reading you right you you just wouldn't understand you'd be going (laughs) yeah exactly Exactly. And then and then almost like a biofeedback, then I'll be responding to what I know now it says I'm thinking and feeling. And oh my right. gosh. It starts right. this weird feedback loop. But the the other feedback loop that's really interesting is between the content that you delivered and the artificial intelligence. I mean, just this great quote of yours saying, I made a sicko AI and so could you. And I took that very literally, not so can I, but so are we. There's yes. AIs behind Facebook and Twitter that are yes. helping orchestrate all the algorithms. We're making them crazy. We're making them sociopaths with all of our posts,
2: aren't we? Yeah. And, you know, I have given quite a number of keynotes and presentations around the world to computer societies, to engineering societies, because these are the people who are essentially creating this. And I show this and I say, look, I'm an artist. I don't program, but I can work with programs. And I made a pervert. You know, I mean, it's not that hard. With the right help, I said, so if I can make one, so can
0: you and so do you. Right. And I tell them straight out. And then to the third project, because there's so much else I want to talk to you about too, you're asking with the third project really, can an AI have uh, almost like DNA-like memory? Can it can it have memory that, that, that then is so internalized that it's in almost subsequent versions of itself? So epigenetics is inherited trauma that
2: changes the rDNA of a living entity's uh, DNA. And the way it was discovered is through flatworms. Flatworms only have 47 DNA strands. They're very simple. And a flatworm was going through a maze, you know, to get food. I don't know what flatworms eat, but whatever they eat. And let's say if it turned left, it was shocked to get the food. But if it took the right, Path it didn't get shocked and it got the food. So then the flatworm had babies, and I I could be wrong, but I don't think mommy flatworms talk to baby flatworms. I think they have them, and then they they they, that's it. They go their little flatworm way. And for thirteen or fourteen generations, those baby flatworms did not take the left path to get the food in the maze, and then they uh, operated on the flatworms and looked at their. DNA structures, and they found with the rDNA that it had changed in the baby flatworms. So that's when the science of epigenetics, which is a pretty recent science from 2011, 2012, the actual science of epigenetics, took off. And there are a lot of experiments being done about it. So I thought about that a lot. And I, I have started working in Eastern Europe um, since 2017. And whenever I go to Eastern Europe, two things happen. One is I don't say anything. You know, I just say, hi, I'm, I'm Ellen. I'm from New York. That's all I say. And people come up to me and they want to take me to Holocaust trauma sites. I don't hmm. say my last name. I don't say anything about my background. They just look at me and they go, oh my God, we have to show you something. So that started happening, which I found intense. And the second thing that started happening is as I would travel through the countrysides, like the woods and the earth, I would begin to have the equivalent of uh, flashbacks, but of flashbacks of things that didn't relate to me personally. So I I started thinking very deeply about what was transmitted to me by my family. Now, my family came to America in 1906. And in my research, I found out just two years ago, this is something you may have known, I didn't know it, that in 1905,
0: there was one of the largest pogroms in all of what's called the Pale of Lithuania. Yeah, my great-grandfather was hanged in that, Pogram. My grandfather was thrown in a well. They, grand, grandmother was raped, and they escaped from that very event.
2: Okay. So I didn't know about that event because in my family, we nobody talked about anything, right? Mm. So I realized that all of my both maternal and paternal family had emigrated right at that time. Right. So that's the first thing I realized. Then, of course, my father fought in World War II. And I was asking the question, why am I – Performances centered around World War II. I wasn't alive then. And so I started going back to a time which was not totally but mostly pre-literate that I remembered. In other words, before I had uh, reading, writing, or only in the early days of reading and writing. And I started thinking of the memories that happened to me. And the, the things that were conveyed that were never said but were conveyed. The sensibilities, the feelings, the imageries, it was the things that were on lockdown internally in my family, and they couldn't express. And I realized, all of a sudden, for the first time, the psychological twisting in my family, which was pretty deep, was not just personal Freudian psychology, but had very, very, deep and long-term roots. Now, I suspect that my, except for a few rapes here and there, my bloodlines are pretty 100% what they are, and that they are that for the past thousand years, I assume. So the genetic changes from trauma must be translated very cleanly, more or less, with a little variation. And that this is true for all cultures of diaspora. There are many cultures, not just my own, but I only know my own. So what happened when I was investigating this is there was a new jump in AI at the same time. And GPT-2, which was text-based, became GPT-3 and its offshoots. Its offshoots started working with images So, if I say it, said to you, Doug, the sun is shining outside today, and I just said it, all of a sudden you could have an image of the sun shining over a house, because you said you're in, you know, upstate New York, so over a house. And that would show the sun shining over a house. Now, the problem with that is very profound because whose house, what sun, and is it the same image for everybody? So what I'm doing right now is I'm investigating. I'm a fellow at MIT right now, and I'm working with ThoughtWorks Arts, and I'm investigating the roots of how these images from generic – there are six data banks of images that all AI researchers are using right now, all of them. How are these images tagged, formed, and spread? And then at the same time, as I'm talking about my own epigenetic memories, I'm making little movies about them, and I'm comparing them and contrasting them to what AI is bringing up using the same words of the same story. Like, let's say I'm making a little story. I walked outside of my house today and I stepped on the sidewalk and I walked to the corner. That's all, something simple like that. And I make a little movie about that, let's say, you know, of an epigenetic movie, which could be very profound about that, from what you said happened to your great-grandparents. You know, they could make that same little movie and what would it look like, as opposed to, you know... AI's generic showing of that statement and I'm going to compare and contrast those movies and also wire myself up biometrically uh probably on my skin I don't want to use a BCI at this point I just want to work with my skin and heartbeat and um breath and things like that and create an AI soundtrack from that and that's gonna take two or three years. And
0: part of it is uh gonna include my going and working in Poland. And to think it's, that's so counterintuitive about it is you know, people hear, oh, you're some kind of digital artist using AI and this and that. You're conveying and working with the most soulful human liminal spaces that we haven't even explored. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's not this is not technology, this is something else, right? The implications of these technologies,
2: you know, I'm going to die in the next 20 or 30 years, probably, right? And these technologies are in their infancy. And the implications of these technologies are so profound, which is why when the UN statement just dropped yesterday,
0: that didn't surprise me in the least. Right, But the, the the AI statement dropped a bit like it reminded me of the Pope's Laudato Si that he did a few years ago, which was the last major statement from a non-tech critic about the impact of digital technology on society, the conscription of the human soul and, and threats to human autonomy and privacy and basic rights. But when you and, – and I do – when I speak with, as you do, with AI developers across the board – So I have yet to find one who's working in the field who's considering genuinely considering the ethical implications of this. I went with with uh, our our editor Luke did a a a panel he had me on at uh, uh, Watson for IBM Watson, and we're sitting there asking these guys who's thinking about the um, ethical uh, applications of Watson, and the guy says, "Well, you know, we think that's up to our clients to figure out." It's like how well i How well did that work for you the last time? Yeah. <laughs> That's all I had to say to that.
2: Yeah. the The fun thing about what I do is um, I can more or less talk their language. I mean, I read a lot of technical papers. I read the the engineering papers. I read the AI published papers. I present at their conferences, even though I'm an artist. So I'm pretty comfortable you know uh sure i can't write algorithms but i can talk to them about a lot of things my feelings about ibm watson is it is not sophisticated and it's clunky right. there are much better uh open ai you know they're much nimble and more intelligent people working with ai than
0: uh ibm watson Right. I mean, yeah, to me, it looks looks like a glorified Google search, you know, and God bless. But, but the fact that they're not thinking about, even after their experience of the punch cards and the Holocaust, that they're not this time around thinking, how can we get in front of that is, is sort of uh, shocking to me. But, you know, and that's where your work is so, to me is so important, because these are the initial interventions of humanity and human autonomy into this discussion. And to do it through art, you know, I try to do it with my little nonfiction books and all that, but to do it through art, it somehow feels like you're creating artifacts that resonate in a different way from a polemic. Do you know what I mean?
2: Yeah. You know, I just
0: presented uh, my AI
2: brainwave opera at a conference in Tokyo, Um, you know, because I, I reach out all around the world. I don't stay North America focused. And most of the participants, this was at an engineering society, in the conference were Chinese AI researchers. And I was able to read their papers because, you know, it's a, it's an academic conference they posted. The amount of papers posted on tracking and facial recognition were through the roof. Not that mm. we don't do it, we do. But I was astounded by how many were... That, because that is what is being um, supported and encouragement encouraged governmentally, I'm not saying our government doesn't do it at all, but I'm saying I was astounded. So when you have countries signing on to these larger international ethics agreements that are being issued by world bodies, that's when it's going to get really interesting because there will be different spheres of regulation and and adherence to that regulation. I can guarantee you, if you think about what just happened in Belarus with Luktaşenkte, you know, the dictator, and how he forced the Ryanair jet plane down and grabbed that 26-year-old kid, what if he had access to all these advanced technologies,
0: which he doesn't, but what if he did? What would he have done to that dissonant? And that's why the question st- starts to be, for me, and I'm happy for people to want to regulate this and for the UN to want to make rules and all, but that feels a bit like, you know, developing antibiotics to kill certain bacteria, that the more important thing and what I get from your work, and I I, I feel it, even watching it video, I don't mean to be a fanboy here, but even yeah. just watching it on video, I can feel my own Cognitive, uh, emotional, immune system being stimulated and strengthened. Do you know what I mean? So that whatever they regulate, I'm more human as a result of experiencing your work, and that's going to be my defense against improperly uh, implemented uh, AI.
2: Thank you for that, Doug. And that and that's the difference between a polemic, a dictate, and an experience where you have agency to form your own opinion, to consider these issues for yourself on your own terms. And I think that's why these come out as creative projects and don't come out as dictates, rules,
0: or anything else. Right. And it it engages with my logic, but it also bypasses my logic at the same time. I mean, I'm thinking, I'm not gone, but it's also – Touching my body, it's touching my 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 skin, my sound. You know, my ears yeah. are are just. It's a high pitched thing. It gets in a different in a different place. You know, so then I metabolize. It's like I don't think about your work. I metabolize your work. <laughs> you know, so what's <laughs> that, what happens then? You know, that, that, that's that's pretty
2: interesting, Doug. <laughs> you know, to say that, and that's why I also use sensor technology because right. as humans. We cognate through our senses. That is our organs and instruments of decision-making. In the first project, what was very important for me was agency. So what I mean, audience agency, and I work with that in the second one too. And audience agency means the audience and the event that they're going to make a tacit agreement That the audience will come in and more or less stay for a certain amount of time. And they are agreeing to witness whatever they're going to be shown. Of course, no one locks them down and they can't leave. But for the most part, it's an understood agreement. When the audience comes in and they've made that agreement, especially in a, a theatrical position where they have no seats, so they just are free to wander around. That sets up agency. They can walk around, they can look, they can turn away, they can do whatever they want. When the performer moves through and does engage them, it is so gentle. She just lightly touches them or looks at them or moves past them. There's no threat. There's no violence. There's no intimidation. And so that interaction in that agency is done in the most delicate way and yet its experience for the audience is profound. At the end of each of both sets of performances, what really shocked me is uh, maybe one person left right at the end, maybe they had to an appointment or something. The audience usually tends to stay for 20 minutes. After the performance, they want to talk. They want to discuss it, and that for me was the oddest thing. I, I was completely astounded. And you, at the end of each performance, they were speechless.
0: You sit also. I mean, I because I, I've read your bio and know some about you. You know, I know that you you studied with uh, Chogum Trumpa for a while, and you must have sat more more. <laughs> More hours that I have, I guess I'm interested in in what that I guess everything that you bring comes you know is informed is informed by that. But I know you've you've engaged with issues of of consciousness and and agency. I mean, do you? Again, this is an obvious panel question, but I kind of have to ask it for myself. I mean, do you feel having worked with these with AIs and that there's any chance of an emergent consciousness happening with these technologies? Or is that all projection on our part? I think there's an emergent
2: puppetry. Mm. And puppetry is imitation and emulation. So when we say consciousness, you know, despite the hype, since um, there's a lot of people – Theorizing about it, but in terms of the actual tech that exists right now that I know of and how it works, there will be superb mimicry. That's what there will be. And we will say, look, it acts exactly like and it imitates exactly like, so therefore it must have. But consciousness, in my understanding, is rooted in the human body and what you can do is using computer vision and all sorts of neural networks and all sorts of data banks you can emulate humans but it will only be an imitation but it
0: will be a superb imitation Right. Well, that's why the Turing test always seemed so silly to me because it's not about what's there. It's about whether it can fool me. You know? So if human beings get stupid enough to think that computer's alive, well, then it's alive. You know? (laughs) It's like, no, (laughs) it's not. You know, Doug, that's why the second one was a love story,
2: the second Mm. opera. What it was is its underlying theme is about humanity's infatuation and falling in love with
0: a monster. Which we are doing with AI. I mean, it's a complete change of topic. But while I have you, I'm interested because I've, I've spoken with a with a bunch of Buddhists lately. You know, and I was good friends with um I don't know if you knew Diane Shaneberg. She was in the. Chugam Trumpa universe for a while. She passed away, oh gosh, almost a decade ago now. And I heard some of the stories about the the wild times there, which is an interesting way to do to do one's Buddhism. But I, I'm really interested in in on the one hand the epigenetics that you're talking about and the way we live on through subsequent generations in ways that now we we didn't maybe realize. Our experiences are not just recorded, they are uh, recapitulated again and again in different ways. They're real. But on the one hand, I feel like Buddhism, What when I sit, what I get is there's nothing after this and be okay with that. Be okay with the dissolution. Don't worry about it. But then I see like Dalai Lama and it's like, oh, this guy can remember all of his lifetimes. So then it's like being held up to me as the promise of, don't worry, there is reincarnation. You get to come back. Is it is it neither or both? I only talk about what I personally experience
2: and I can only talk about what I personally know When I've had my own experiences with the nature of my own cognition It's then that I look towards any kind of writings about it I don't concern myself with writings about things that I have not experienced Because I just can't say I do concern myself with writings about my own cognitive experiences during Deep Retreat. So since I personally have not had the experience or the knowledge of what high lamas say they have, I can't comment on it. And so if you're going to read about death, you'll do that after you die. Um, (laughs) Well, the thing about death is I have in my youth— Done injected controlled
0: ketamine experiments. In your youth, when was that? It was like with John Lilly and those folks or the West Coast?
2: uh, Not specifically John Lilly, but Mm -hmm. I would say in the 1970s and early, late 70s, early 80s. Wow. And when I was injected with ketamine by a licensed psychiatrist, and there were music therapists and other people there. I experienced what I assume is the death state or the, the dissolution of consciousness in the mm. death state and the human body because it's an anesthetic and you're put into a liminal state. I remember what I experienced. Um, I experienced no history, no gender, no body, no memory and only raw consciousness, moment to moment. There was no sense of self and no personal identity. That was my
0: experience. That's interesting, because I remember um, when Timothy Leary did ketamine in a tank, uh, very near the end of his life. Mm-hmm. And you know John Lilly came and injected him and stuck him in the tank. And Leary came out and he was like, I'm never doing that again. I'm like, what happened? And he said, I experienced myself as a book but the binding was taken out, and the pages were floating through the universe, and then I didn't know which page to get back on. <laughs> <laughs> which, which is the issue with identity
2: and self, um, when I was talking about – that, it's sort of the same thing. He might have had an image of something, but he didn't know. Yeah,
0: yeah it was the exact same thing. That's right. why it came to mind, because it's describing – it's an image for what you're saying, that the self of the book is dispersed – yeah. And now you're in the spaces between those pages. What was, your, what was your existence? Raw cognition is the only thing in the
2: moment. In other words, you know, we had sound therapists. And what was interesting is uh, in deep ketamine, sound disappeared, which I was very surprised about. And it was only, uh, and uh, and this is a little cliche, but it's true, consciousness apprehending consciousness, which in Buddhist texts is called the alaya Vijnana. It is the, the seat of the root of cognition and consciousness. And I had a direct experience of it, it with Kenamine. So, therefore, I would then go to Buddhist texts and read about that. Because uh, that was my experience. It wasn't something I was told. I was like, yeah, that happened to me, and I want to know what it was. So if it didn't happen to me, or I don't have an understanding of it, I don't really think very much of it, and I don't really take it as gospel. You know, I think that's the best way to talk about uh, you know those types of experiences. If you don't have it, you can't talk about it for me. People can theorize all they want.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm personally less worried about, you know, my own death or whatever happens than the possible uh, death or at least rapid decline of civilization itself. I mean, do you find yourself worried about, worried, actively worried about the state of things and what's going to happen with our, you know, children or grandchildren and subsequent generations or even just 20, 30 years from now? There are three main factors happening right now, hand in
2: hand. The first is climate degradation. The second is the embrace of virtuality. And the third is the rise of AI. These are all marching step-by-step together and are all related. I think COVID was a dress rehearsal for climate change. Because of that, I've steered our residencies, not all of them, but our residencies to investigate questions of climate emergency and questions of AI as our two major topics. We have a lot of minor topics, but that we that's where we should put our focus. Because uh, we still can adapt and change. We can't roll back. And you know this is not a question I can answer. Am I concerned yeah i'm I'm concerned. am I freaked out? No, also, I should add the rise of what just happened yesterday um uh, space travel and a certain economic class being able to colonize space travel. that's also a sort of sub wing of the climate emergency and if you look. It's all happening at the same time, except everybody's focused on their sphere.
0: Right. And someone has to sort of pull back and see what's happening on on a systems level here. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's not the Anthropocene. That's that's the wrong term for it. It's something larger than the Anthropocene. It has to do with speed. It has to do with miniaturization. It has to do with environmental degradation. These are all lockstep with each other. They're all interrelated. And so when you see all of this happening at the same time, and instead of being freaked out, you see the larger picture. You or any one person, because we're only individuals, uh, can intervene on certain aspects of it in small ways, because I'm not a government and I don't have a lot of power. Um, And that's all one can do. I mean, I'm very realistic. What can I do?
0: And I'm sure you are too, which is what can you do? And you do what you can do. Right. At the scale at which humans actually operate rather than trying to operate on a corporate scale, which is the problem, you know, to begin with. That's really the whole purpose of Team Human is to engage as embodied Partners and colleagues and lovers in in this collective journey together, you know, and hopefully a sustainable one. But you know, I want to thank you, you know, so much for being on Team Human for for you know you your work is the closest thing to the, my rallying cry, <laughs> um, you know, that I've come across. You're you're an inspiration on so many levels. I want to find out someday, but not today, exactly why the word ninja appears in your bio because i was obsessed with ninjas and i want to find out if you can climb up walls i can't climb up <laughs> walls but i have been trained in the past to w-
2: walk in darkened rooms blindfolded on crumpled pieces of
0: paper silently you are my hero <laughs> <laughs> well, thank, you, <laughs> thank you thank you thank you Thanks for being on Team Human. Our guest today was visionary interactive artist Ellen Perlman. You can find out more about her and links to all of her work at teamhuman.fm, where you can also become a supporting member of the team. Team Human is produced by Joshua Chapolin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps.